0: Welcome to the latest edition of Infection Control Matters. I'm Brett Mitchell and you'll be pleased to hear that uh, I've upgraded my microphone and hopefully the sound quality is a little bit um, better today than um, previous days. With me today is Phil Russo and Phil, I think
1: you've also got a new microphone. I do indeed, Brett, and um, it's quite fun having this nice little microphone on my desk so hopefully the sound quality is good. Now
0: Phil, today you're going to talk about an article that's piqued your interest. What what
1: article are we going to be talking about? That's right, Brett. I, I, I'm going to hark back to the midst of 2020 last year, which is the COVID year for everybody, of course. And um, in Australia, the story of COVID in Australia is pretty much the story of Victoria, essentially, because that was the where the majority of cases were occurring. And in the midst of the winter, um, Victoria went down went into a second lockdown for around about three months, and there was only four reasons to leave home. At the same time, hospitals stopped elective surgery and also introduced a number of um, infection prevention measures, uh, which increased the heightened awareness of infection control and such things as hand hygiene, increased cleaning, social distancing, mask wearing, all those sort of things that uh, were brought into hospitals. And this got me wondering because when I was working in the hand hygiene space, I was acutely aware during that time that we had many challenges in getting healthcare workers and some specific groups of healthcare workers to undertake hand hygiene. Um, And what I was seeing during this big lockdown, metaphorically speaking, was that some groups of healthcare workers wouldn't even walk past a hospital without being fully decked out in PPE. So I started to wonder if all these increased compliance with infection prevention activity may be having an effect not only on COVID, but also on the other healthcare-associated infections. Um, And in fact, um, uh, as you know, Brett, you and I are looking at something similar um, in a study locally in Australia as well. Uh, But I came across this paper by Liang Enhui from Singapore, which is in pre-proof at the moment, the American Journal of Infection Control. And it was titled Unintended Consequences of Infection Prevention and Control Measures, during COVID-19 pandemic. The Singapore group also includes um, the well-known uh, Ling Moi Lin. Um, so this group were interested in the question about what impact it had, but they also raised the question um, if all this attention on COVID prevention might compromise infection prevention control activities in other areas and leading to an increase in HAIs? Yeah, well, that's a very interesting question to look at.
0: And for those um, listening as well, we do put a link to the article um, that we were talking about on the podcast website. So if you want to grab a link to that and look at it yourself, um, feel free to. So Phil, yes, this is an interesting concept. I've heard people say perhaps One thing or another could happen with COVID um, and additional precautions that potentially are taken within hospitals. Maybe we'd see an increase in certain infections and maybe we might see a decrease in others. So what did the authors look at in in this paper?
1: So it was done at the Singapore General Hospital, which is a large hospital with over 1,700 beds. And what they did was compare the rates of healthcare-associated infection over a seven-month period During the pandemic from February to August of 2020, after the introduction of enhanced infection control measures. And they compared those rates against the rates of HAI over the preceding two years. Now, the authors report that during the period of February to August, there were over 1,600 cases of COVID cared for by the hospital. It's not clear as to whether or not they're actually inpatients, I'm assuming. They were inpatients but they don't specify that they say they were cared for but they do make the point that there was no evidence of any patient to healthcare worker transmission. So prior to COVID um, all the the hospital was primarily comprised of multi-bed open wards Routinely, patients with respiratory symptoms were isolated in single rooms when possible, but because of the lack of the number of single rooms, that wasn't always achievable. There was universal masking, using surgical masks in high-risk areas, such as intensive care units. And in the preceding years, there'd been various infection prevention control bundles, which had a a composition of hand hygiene, cleaning, contact precautions had been in place for, for quite some time.
0: Just on that, Phil, I noticed the, um, the 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 comment about universal mask wearing in ICUs and other high risk settings prior to COVID. So it was an interesting approach. Prior to that, it's not something we would necessarily see in all hospitals across the world. I guess perhaps that's um, something that happens more in the US. It'd be interesting to know that, but um, certainly not that common practice here in Australia.
1: Yes, I I picked up on that too, Brett, and I did think that that was perhaps a little bit unusual because I don't think we'd see that certainly um, here in Australia as as a routine. Uh, So just uh, describing the COVID bundle that was uh, implemented with the um, arrival of COVID into Singapore and into the healthcare setting – Um, Patients who had respiratory symptoms but no epidemiological risk factors were segregated into what they called respiratory surveillance wards where they made a note of that all the beds were at least 1.5 metres apart. All the patients wore wore masks and after about four to five weeks of this being established, the PPE that staff were using was upgraded, and that's their term, from surgical masks to N95s. For the confirmed COVID cases, all were placed in airborne infection isolation rooms, which I'm assuming um, includes negative ventilation. Um, Rooms were cleaned with hypochlorite three times a day. There was also UVC cleaning on discharge and uh, all staff, of course, were in PPE with 95s and that included the cleaners. And then across the hospital, um, there was universal masking, surgical masks for all healthcare workers in clinical areas. There was a, an increased emphasis on hand hygiene. Um, the cleaning was as, as above three times a day uh, with the introduction of auditing of cleaning um, procedures using fluorescent markers. And UVC was also used for discharge, um, patients on discharge who had an MRO so Phil, a, a
0: big bundle of different approaches there, and you might talk about some more in a minute, but that's a wide ranging things that were implemented. And I also noted that on the PPE side, you mentioned the sort of upgrading to um, uh, respirators n 95 respirators, but uh, there was also use of face shields, gowns and gloves um, universally too. Um, so, look, it's, it it's a, a big step up in a range of different areas, in, including that designated cohorting of respiratory patients. That's correct,
1: Brett. And, and what they also did was they um, did temperature screening for all visitors um, prior to um, entrance into the hospital and uh, the requirement for visitors to wear masks. And then for about a seven-week period during this t- Um, visitors were actually banned from from visiting the hospital, which is a fairly dramatic type of uh, intervention as well. I um, can't let this one slip. Um, The old temperature
0: checking on um, entrance to hospital. I would love to know if there's any of our listeners out there who uh, have collected data on on this and to see just how many people have actually been turned away with temperature checks or as a result of a temperature check. I anecdotally, I was um, going to an event here in Australia, and there's a bit of a queue outside in the sun, it was a good 30 odd degree day, in the middle of summer, they're doing temperature checks before going into the venue, and um, the queue to get in was a good 20 minutes. Um, by the time everyone got their temperature check done, everyone had a temperature, uh, their face was burning. Um, and uh, everyone's asked to stand for 10 minutes in a little quiet, cool area, which, um, uh, and then have your temperature checked again and allowed in. Interesting, because you know uh, everyone had a temperature <laughs> because they were in the sun. And um, yeah, so I'd be really, I'd be really fascinated to know if people are doing any work on this
1: uh, or looking at this particular topic because it does consume a lot of resources. Yeah, it, it does. It, it can be an expensive activity. So it'd be interested to know what proportion of people are found to have a temperature, and then f- taking that a little bit further. Uh, what well, proportion of those actually turned out to have COVID? Um, because it's a fairly common screening tool, not only in hospitals but also in a lot of um, workplaces. Um, and still to this day, um, there are some temperature checks going around in in in, um, in Victoria. Mm. We digress, Phil. Sorry, but uh, no, no, I couldn't it's help a, on that it's one. <laughs> interesting topic. So um, let's cut to the chase and talk about some of the results that um, they've, these uh, the investigators have found. So uh, let's start off with the, um, the highlights, I guess. So there was a significant decrease found in the, res- in the cumulative incidence of the uh, patients with respiratory viral infections. Um, there was a significant decrease in the MRSA acquisition rate, and there was also a significant decrease in the hospital-wide central line associated bloodstream infection rates. So that's the real positive part of uh, the unintended consequences. Um, there was Bill, well, before, we, before we go to the, to the other
0: ones, um, so healthcare associated respiratory viral infections, club um, disease, and MRSA bacteremia reduced um associated with these additional measures.
1: MRSA acquisition
0: rate. MRSA acquisition rate. Okay, good. Thanks for that, Phil. Um and I know the, the things like the healthcare associated respiratory viral infection incidents actually decreased quite quite a bit. The um incident rate ratio was 0.08. So we're not just talking a little reduction, we're talking quite a massive reduction in, in the incidence. Yeah. So that's interesting,
1: yeah. Which, which um, I guess is plausible, very plausible because of the heightened um, increase in infection prevention for respiratory viral illnesses.
0: Yeah, and particularly the masking element for those types of things. The, the MRSA acquisition um, and the C are like different modes of transmission to obviously respiratory infections. So perhaps that's where other elements of the bundle—the hand hygiene focus, the environmental cleaning focus, perhaps PPE—if uh, it was used more appropriately—perhaps um, those things were contributing factors to to what, some of
1: those decreases. Yeah, that's true. I mean, as we know, the bundle is all—we've got all those slices of cheese lining up—and we'll never actually know which one of those um, was the the or uh, well, the combined effort of all of them really. Um, could could have led to that, but and also you know that general um, subconscious increased awareness of of you know infection prevention in the midst of of COVID. When we we look at other outcomes, um, what we we didn't see any significant difference in the um, CRE acquisition rate or the pseudomonas um, aeruginosa infection rates or CDI. All the catheter-associated urinary tract infection rates all remained fairly stable. And then drilling into the intensive care unit, where there was also um, surveillance of um, ventilator-associated pneumonias, um, there was no um, difference between the CLABSI rates, the CAUTI rates, or the ventilator-associated pneumonia rates. Mm. So interesting that, that the CLABSI rate hospital-wide was... Uh, significantly decrease, but not the um, not the
0: rate in ICU. I see, yeah, that is interesting. It's interesting to see what the baseline of ICU is relative to the rest of the hospital too. And um, I guess some of those other ones, well, I guess the the county rate. Um, some of those measures that were put in place um, perhaps have a, a minimal effect um, on what you'd expect in terms of transmission rates for things like county. Mm. Um, The CDI is an interesting one. Clostridium difficile is an interesting one. There was actually a paper published in Journal of Hospital Infection late 2020, which was a systematic review and meta-analysis. It's actually called The Effects of Environmental Cleaning Bundles on Reducing Healthcare-Associated C. diff Infection, a systematic review and meta-analysis. And the authors there looked at um, bundled environmental cleaning studies to look at the combined effects using systematic review approach on CDI. And the authors concluded in that they found no significant effect of environmental cleaning bundles on the incidence of CDI. Uh, but there were limitations with that, so no massive conclusions could be drawn. Um, they also pointed that the UV um, marker technology um, and feedback to stuff was associated with... Um, reductions in uh, the incidence of CDI. and um, So that, that might be a, a paper that people are also interested in just as a peripheral to, to this discussion that supports what you just sort yeah. of said, uh, supports the findings of, of this study. Yeah,
1: yeah. and I guess um, the other um, curious part of this is that the um, perhaps there's also a difference in the practice of insertion maintenance of central lines outside of the ICU. Uh, which could account for, um, you know, the routine practice of both, perhaps, you know, there's a hint here that maybe in ICU they're better at looking after uh, their central lines and they are hospital-wide, which also, you know, is, is, is an interesting question. Um, and just to finish off with the results, uh, it was also noted and um, that the hand hygiene compliance rate increased from 85% to 100% Across all categories of healthcare workers, which is quite remarkable, Brett. Don't you think? Yes. I, <laughs>
0: look, I'll, I'll put out a bias there straight away um, because I don't believe hand hygiene rates that are generally published um, uh, as a, as as a guide to what is actually normal practice. Um, 100%. Well, that's um,
1: that's incredible. Mm. Yeah, look, I look. I'm looking forward to the day when we see 120 percent compliance with, <laughs> with hand hygiene reported. Um, what we don't know is how much, uh, how many, or how much auditing was done with the hand hygiene. That's the raw numbers aren't, aren't provided. The other outcome, alcohol consumption. Sorry, the uh, hand hygiene um, products. The alcohol consumption increased from 58 liters per day to 79. And not surprisingly, the consumption of PPE across the board increased fivefold. You know, I think
0: they're really important measures. We, you know, we had a bit of a jest about the 100% hand hygiene compliance, but it is really good that the authors have also included some of what, what I would potentially call compliance related data. So seeing, you know, an increase in alcohol based hand rub Um, consumption can only be a positive thing uh, and, you know, would correlate potentially with increased hand hygiene compliance. Arguably not, but some people would say yes. And, you know, capturing some of that data on PPE use. So, you know, some uh, objective data that, uh, oh, yes, this was implemented as an intervention to have additional PPE, but in actual fact we saw that through product use too. Mm. I think the other interesting thing they reported on was about um, UVC Disinfection. So they talked about increasing the amount of UVC disinfection from an average of 16 rooms treated per day pre-pandemic to 25. So again, it's another example of the authors really being clear about what some of those increases were. And it's great to see papers written that way because often people say they're going to do something, we really don't know whether it happened in practice or not.
1: Yeah, yeah, and and further to that, with the, with compliance of these measures. Um, they do note in the discussion that their PPE was changed between patients, not sessions. So it's, there's been a bit of discussion on the use of PPEs to how frequently should be changed in, in COVID uh, wards. And that they noted that the, P, P, the adherence to PPE use was very high up in the 90% um, range. So uh, the good uh, they, they were quite pleased about the fact that there was no other healthcare-associated infections um, that were noted to increase, so that's very much a positive, positive. Um, and that the noted reductions in respiratory viral infections and in MRSA acquisition actually contrasted against their experience during the SARS outbreak in 2003, which was probably a bit of a trigger for them to do this study as well. Uh obviously the the limitation of it only being a single site um study. And they also do note that the interventions that they implemented were or, um, were of course quite resource intensive, but um probably justifiably so uh, that they were into in uh that they were implemented um in this setting.
0: Yeah. I think the one thing that would be really interesting as well is to hear about SSI rates during COVID pre and post. I guess the the major confounder with looking at SSI rates is a lot of elective surgery certainly stopped mm. many countries across the world during COVID. So that obviously would be a, a bit of a, a rather significant confounder to have to to consider when, when thinking about those types of studies or research. But I would be interested to see if this these types of things had a knock-on effect for things like Surgical site infections, where things like hand hygiene, correct PPE use, um, not just PPE use, might be um, quite important. That's right, as well, as well as the role of the environment in those types of things.
1: And that's what we don't know. We don't. We don't have any feel for what the patient mix was like between these two time periods. But presumably that was different, as you said. There was no elect probably unlikely to have been elective surgery. Anecdotally, we know that um, patients, oncology patients, hematology patients, uh, did uh, certainly in Australia, were encouraged to Um, have their consultations via telehealth and not actually attend the hospital coming to hospitals and a lot of effort was uh, made uh, towards keeping those types of high-risk patients out of hospital as much as possible so that would be a really interesting thing to do is to look at the and do some sort of comparison of the patient mix between those those two time periods
0: well that was an interesting article phil um yeah
1: i really like that one yeah well like i said it it piqued my interest because we're looking at something similar and I'm sure that we're probably not the only group who are looking at, at this sort of data during this time period as to see what difference and what impact all our heightened infection control awareness has had. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Look,
0: Phil, thank you very much for presenting that paper. I hope those listening online found it interesting as well and um as we always say, please do send in some suggestions to us about topics that, that you might be interested in hearing about. We do have a range of speakers lined up in coming weeks. Phil, I'm not sure if we're going to talk about who they are specifically, but we are covering a range of different things.
1: We are indeed. And um, our colleague, Martin Keenan, um, has been very busy beaving away, harassing some of his colleagues to, uh, to uh, submit to a chat. A, a And also, um, we are looking forward to welcoming Deb Friedman, who is an infectious diseases physician and a a long-time infection control expert joining our podcast team as well. So we hope to hear from Deb very soon. Indeed. So with that in
0: mind, Phil, we'll wrap up this podcast. Thank you, everybody, for listening. And uh, we hope you enjoyed it. And we look forward to uh, you joining us for our next podcast. Bye for now. Bye for now.